2: Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramau Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I just had the real pleasure of talking with Carl Girth about his new book, Unending Capitalism How Consumerism Negated China's Communist Revolution. This came out in 2020 with the University of Cambridge Press. And before I tell you what this book is about and what it's arguing, I'm going to follow Carl's own suggestion for how to best approach this book. Um, And he talks about this as you'll hear in my conversation with him. So I'm going to jump straight to talking about what material this book looks at. This book looks at how luxury products, in particular wristwatches, bicycles, and sewing machines became more commonplace and increasingly desirable in the Mao era and how owning these luxury products, and in particular the right brand of these luxury products, became markers of success. It covers the state creation of brands, the state promotion of certain products, most notably Soviet fashion, and the growth and development of both state advertising and state department stores, all in the Mao era. It also covers the wildly popular fad of Mao badges, highly desirable little items which were mass-produced and worn to communicate identities and social standing, particularly during the Cultural Revolution. This book is filled with stories of people going to really remarkable lengths to get particular Mao badges, certain brands of wristwatch. Um, And again, all of the examples, all of the stories, all of the people, everyone vying for bicycles and making sure that they're wearing the right fashions, they're all from the Mao era. This book takes all of these examples and so many more, and it places them together, and then it invites the reader to take a long, hard look at all of this evidence and then ask themselves, does this look like socialism? What this book concludes, as you may have been able to tell from the title, is that there's nothing about this that is socialist at all. This book is all about consumers and consumerism during the first few years of the People's Republic of China. And ultimately, what this book shows is that the CCP did not end capitalism, even if it said it did, because it was never really trying to. It was trying to harness industrial capitalism and consumerism for itself. This is a book that is making all kinds of contributions. It is a really interesting look at life during the Mao era, a really rich exploration of the products that people obtained, how they obtained them, and what they meant to their owners. In terms of the field of Chinese history, this book really calls into question how the Mao era is periodized, arguing in particular that the post-Mao policy changes promoting greater consumerism represented less of a complete break with what came before, and more a gentle shift. And more broadly, this is a book that asks us to think seriously about terms and definitions. It really calls into question the utility of thinking of China during this period as socialist, because the evidence that it puts together just doesn't support that definition at all. And because of this, because it is a book that thinks long and hard about evidence and what good evidence looks like and what kinds of evidence are necessary to, pour, to support something like continuing to call a state that claimed to be socialist, socialist, I highly recommend it to anyone interested in Chinese history, the Mao era, and just well-written, well-researched, and well-considered history overall. It helps that it is also filled with fabulous stories of watches given as engagement presents, factory workers wearing and trying to get the latest Soviet fashions, and how department store employees were supposed to treat their customers. So I hope you seek it out, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Carl Girth that follows. I'm here today with Carl Girth to talk about his new book, Unending Capitalism, How Consumerism Negated China's Communist Revolution. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Carl, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
2: Of course. So why don't we begin, as is tradition on the podcast, with your beginning, so how did you come to work in the field of Chinese history and modern Chinese history in particular?
1: How much time do we have? <laughs> I mean, I can, I'm an historian after all. If you want to talk about the origins, I could go all the way back to my childhood. Indeed, I could go back to my childhood. My dad was a is a consultant in international trade. So perhaps I had an international orientation from a very young age. He was oriented towards Europe, however. I remember also as a young person that my town, Evanston, north of Chicago, had a one of those Peking bookshops, store dedicated to selling books about China. And when I was in college, I went in there one summer, uh, the summer after my freshman year, and was amazed by all the books I saw on topics that I knew nothing about. E- each different section of the Of the bookstore devoted to one or another aspect of China was on something completely foreign to me. So I bought a couple of books of Chinese philosophy, and that was the beginning of it. I started, you know, I went back to to uh, college for my sophomore year and dropped all the courses I had signed up for on the Soviet Union and proceeded to study everything about China. And then went abroad to China my junior year and just kind of kept studying China ever since.
2: Very cool. But what, what brought you to Chinese history in particular? So you mentioned sort of philosophy. I can imagine, um, sort of Soviet-China relations coming in there. Why history in particular? Oh,
1: oh this is slightly embarrassing to admit. I, I think it is probably because history major was the easiest to fulfill and graduate in four <laughs> years. Um, so I could take all sorts of courses. I could go abroad for a year and then dropped out of college to travel around uh, China for a year, all of these things. And I would still get to you know graduate in four years. So I always say when Chinese people ask me why Chinese history, I, I, I also tell them it was more more about history. So I'd say I started very open-ended way, interested in the humanities and social sciences. And then China became a kind of specific area to study within history. So I was first drawn to history and then drawn to Chinese history. But yeah, before that, I, I guess simultaneously, I was became interested in China as being something quite different than what I was beginning to learn about the Soviet Union, which still existed when I was uh, matriculating as an undergrad.
2: Very cool. I mean, I think that sounds like as a good a reason as any to study history, uh, a very practical reason to study history. Uh, so I think that is perfectly valid as an answer. Uh, so the book that we're going to be talking about today, Unending Capitalism, is actually your third book. And in terms of the time period that it covers, um, it fits, you know, rather nicely, very neatly uh, in between your first and second books. So your first book, China Made, Consumer Culture and the Creation of the Nation, uh, looked at the growth of nationalism and consumer culture in early 20th century China. Your second book, As China Goes, So Goes the World, How Chinese Consumers Are Transforming Everything, looked at Chinese consumers in contemporary China. And this book kind of looks at the middle. Uh, It covers consumerism in the Mao era. So you go from, you know, right before 1949 through 1978, and you just just touch on the early 1980s. So could you talk a little bit about how you came to write your books in this way? Was this always your plan to write three books um, in this way? And how did having your other books really as sort of bookends to this project? shape how you approached or thought of this book, Unending Capitalism?
1: Mm, yeah, I um, I signed a contract a very, very long time ago to write a sweeping history of the rise of consumerism in China across the 20th century. Um, so that would include, I was going to steal stuff from my first book, uh, and then I was going to just kind of work forward from 1949 to the present. Uh, but when I went set off to write this book, I decided that rather than the usual let's start at the beginning, uh, I would start at the end, and I would do the contemporary stuff first, and try to pick out the issues that I saw going on in consumerism and contemporary China, and then maybe trail some of those issues uh, back in time. Well, typical historian's problem that as I was writing what was meant to be one chapter, the final chapter for this sweeping history, it grew and it grew and it grew, and then it grew so large that it quickly became a book itself. Um, I decided also that that book would be more accessible or interesting to a wider audience. So I wrote it in quite a different style from the monograph that I wrote in my first book to this third book as a kind of somewhere something in between meant to be more accessible, but not as easy to read as uh, the second book. So yeah, um, I always imagined in that sweeping history of the consumers in the 20th century, that the hardest part would be what I thought of as the mysterious middle. In fact, that was the working title uh, for my for this project for a long time. Namely, what happens to the advent of consumerism and capitalism that we see in the first third of the 20th century of China, when a, s- a self-proclaimed socialist uh, state is set up after 1949, and uh, and then uh, and then how does whatever happens during that period lead to what happens, what follows when uh, Mao dies in 1976 and Deng Xiaoping eventually comes to power and promotes the kind of stuff that seemingly had been suppressed or attacked uh, in the previous decades. Uh, So, right, I always knew this was going to be the hardest bit to do um, because it seemed counterintuitive, at least when I began doing this project 13 plus years ago, uh, three jobs ago or two jobs ago. (laughs) Um, uh, um, uh, that this was going to be the hard part of getting the material conceptualizing the material all of these things was going to be difficult there wouldn't be much of a secondary literature to rely on Um, so yeah this then became the harder hardest of the three books by far Um, great
2: I love I love the mysterious middle as a working, as a working title. Yeah,
1: well, it's mis- it is mysterious because you know, kind of assumption is that, especially in our focus on production, and that was there, the state's focus on uh, too. How how could China, for instance, produce an atomic bomb as quickly as possible? You look across every aspect of the economy, and China was desperate to industrialize uh, as quickly as possible. So that has been the predominant story we tell. So, what happened to the sort of Urban consumerism that I had studied in China made um, after this state comes to power it did seem like a bit of a mystery, and that that was kind of at the margins of the story for what happens after 1949. And I wanted to see well, what happens if we put it more at the center of the way that historians like me who see capitalism as requiring not just the explosion of production, but also the stimulation of massive consumption. So I knew inherently, or to begin with, that China's development of industrial capitalism uh, throughout the 20th century was going to require a corresponding management of consumption as well. So I knew there was a story in there somewhere, I just wasn't sure what. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mysterious to me, mysterious to the secondary literature at the time. I guess that's why I thought of that term. Mm
2: -hmm. So let's dive right into the mysterious middle. Uh, So this book, Unending Capitalism, as you've, you know, just sort of started to touch on, is the first history of consumerism in the People's Republic of China. So this is a really rich book. It's a detailed book. It's filled with really fascinating examples and memories and products and fads. And this book really tries to explain why the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP's stated goal of building socialism by eliminating attributes of capitalism, failed. And as you show in the book, it seems to have failed not by accident, but seemingly by intention, by design. The CCP didn't only inherit a China where consumerism, complete with the production of consumer products, the spread of these products in mass media and strong consumer identities, were alive and well, it expanded consumerism through its policies. It created socialist and socialist, here is an air quotes, uh, socialist fashions and socialist consumer products, socialist brands, socialist advertising, and socialist department stores. So it really didn't end capitalism at all. Instead, it used the practices of capitalism and consumerism for its own ends. So the goal here, as you show, of building socialism was really on, almost undercut consistently throughout, which means, as you argue in the book, that China's political economy during this period should not be thought of as socialist or even on its way to being socialist at all. And I was hoping that you would, as you do so very clearly in the book, both in the introduction and in the notes, explain what you mean by state capitalism and industrial capitalism. So what what does this mean, and why is it important that we think of Mao-era China in this way? How does this sort of fundamentally reshape how we think of and approach this period?
1: Well, uh, that's a, a great, uh, great summary of everything. Yeah, I, I, um, I in the introduction, um, define these, all of these terms very carefully. Uh, the only term I coin or invent is state consumerism as a corollary to state capitalism, as I see consumerism as a part of capitalism, as the consumption side of capitalism. Um, I see using this term state capitalism as important because I see all of the entire history of the 20th century as capitalism spreading around the world, and that uh, that capitalism would look quite different in different places. So the way I try to capture that is by describing a spectrum of capitalism that ranges from state-dominated to private-dominated, so I have a spectrum of state to private control over the development of industrial capitalism, and what I I then next do is try to differentiate in that spectrum the different kinds of institutional relationships we see. So I I, I it's very important in my analysis to see that whether the state controls capital or whether it's privately controlled of capital, you still have capital and capitalism. Um, that those are variations in institutional arrangements. They're not capitalism. So I work for the University of California. Nobody's calling that a socialist institution, uh, even though it's you know, state-controlled, nominally state-controlled. Um, so uh, this, this, uh, I guess, before we talk about terms or as we talk about terms, uh, um, I guess I would invite readers to read and contemplate my material themselves almost skip over chapter one and say how would you describe all of this stuff how would you see the advent of how would you for instance talk about the state creation of brands and a hierarchy of brands wherein some brands say that you're smart have a good job educated um in touch with latest fashions probably from a city probably a male maybe a manager all of the kind of things that we communicate through the things that we buy um, including brands what what's what is a social estate doing um, creating brands so I, I so I'll go back to your question about what these terms mean and how I use them but I guess because they can be confusing or slightly overwhelming to people um, especially to historians who are unfamiliar with these terms I guess I I guess I invite people to do what I did, which is to go through the various case studies and the material and say, does this really add up to them moving towards something that we think of as socialism? And by socialism, it can mean many different things. A prominent American economist uh, calls socialism, oh, sorry, calls socialism the yearning for something beyond capitalism. That's his you know, very technical definition. What I see in definitions of socialism, including the ones used by the uh, Chinese Communist Party itself, is that workers would control the fruits of what they produce. They would no longer be alienated uh, and given a wage for what they produce, and, and they would get to have some say in, some democratic control over what it's produced, therefore how it's distributed. Um, so in what way do, do we look through this material and see them as the Chinese Communist Party claims building socialism, moving towards socialism? I think it's much more accurate to say that they were facilitating the expansion of industrial capitalism. And one of the ways that I go about um, investigating that is through the spread of inequalities. Mm
2: -hmm. And I think uh, just going back to sort of your caution to the listeners and would-be readers about going, um, about how to approach your book, about how to, you know, dive into the the chapters themselves, and then return to the introduction. I think that's a very, um, I think it's an interesting way for listeners and would-be readers to approach the book. But I do think that once listeners look at the middle and then return to the introduction, I do think that you're extremely clear in the introduction with terms about what you're sort of, um, how you are going to approach um, Chinese socialism or what they call socialism and why it's important that it's being called socialism. It's being called building socialism. But what is it actually, if we look at it, how you are using terms, all of that, I think you lay out really Uh, beautifully. uh,
1: Could I stop you there and and say that I'm really grateful uh, that you uh, see it that way, because I spent an enormous amount of time revising and revising. (laughs) At one point, I had an absurdly long, something like 40,000 word introduction. My apologies to friends out there who had to read that version, uh, where I kind of spell, you know, spell all of that out. A lot of that was reduced to footnotes. But I would also say, I would also ask your readers to look at other books and see what kind of definition, how do they define, do they even bother to define their terms? Or do they assume that we all are agreed upon what socialism means? Or, Or do they just simply import that term uh, the way that states use it i don't think that st- someone studying any other country in any other time would use the definition offered up by the states or by politicians uh, even if you respect and admire those politicians you wouldn't use their definitions or i wouldn't use their definitions as the end point i would may use it as a possibility for the way people are thinking about the material but i would you know look to the material first so yes i'm i'm glad that my uh, definitions of these terms were clear and i would I would um, also invite people to like look for competing or different definitions. When people bother at all to qualify what they mean by socialism, as I point out in the footnotes, they usually just say state socialism, which is a bit of an oxymoron, or they say actually existing socialism, or they kind of come up with these. It almost seems like a mirror image of what the communists are doing themselves, namely hiring hundreds, if not thousands of people to endlessly come up with theoretical justifications for the contradictions and what is actually going on on the ground. So I told you, I, I told, um, I would say that I, I've experienced a tremendous amount of uh, relief in in abandoning what I felt was the obvious term for this. Originally, I wanted to call this all socialist consumerism. The way they they themselves had called it, socialist advertising, or socialist this, or socialist that. So somehow, it would alleviate me of the need to kind of theoretically think about this material. if I just slapped down the word "socialist," and that was the end of any end, end of my need to do anything. But you know, now that we're what decades away from the Cold War, it seems like we shouldn't unproblematically use Cold War terms, uh, terms left over from the Cold War, that those might have served the interests of both sides of the Cold War, of calling that socialism, much like calling what Bernie Sanders is up to socialism, becomes something that then you can define and target and um, when it could be defined as they were in China, defining it much more broadly than the narrow way that states would want to define it.
2: Perfect. Thank you for that. So holding on to sort of what you've really emphasized there as sort of a healthy skepticism towards terms, and how states define them and how states deploy them. Let's move into chapter one. And chapter one is sort of where you look, you start to look at things on the ground as it as it was. Um, And chapter one looks at consumerism. um, it focuses on three luxury products, the three greats, as they were known, that were particularly important in China in the 1960s. And these are wristwatches, bicycles, and sewing machines. And this chapter sort of looks at how through these products, capitalism and consumerism were expanded in the Mao era. And here, something I thought was particularly interesting is that you're really unpacking the contradictory attitudes that the state and people had towards these products during this period. And I'll just touch on a couple of the strands that this chapter picks up on. So each of these products, the wristwatch, bicycles, sewing machines, um, they initially began life in China as imported foreign products, but then they were turned into domestic products. Um, And the purchase and use of these products was promoted as a patriotic thing to do Although throughout, consumers were still assured that these products were maybe just like the foreign ones or in some case used the foreign parts or were based on foreign models. So, you know, a bit of attention there. Um, And as these domestic brands were created, you have the rise of brand consciousness. So consumers become aware of the different brands. It's not enough to just have any wristwatch. You have to have the right wristwatch, even as the state is encouraging consumers to be thrifty. And increased access to the three greats was viewed as a symbol of socialist success, a sign that the country was industrializing and becoming wealthier, but not everyone could buy the products. The state regulated access to many of them, including the purchase of watches. So you needed a letter of introduction from your work unit in order to buy one. So only urban and industrial workers could buy them. So far from being products distributed to the masses, They became markers of sophisticated identity, of being an industrial worker. So these products only widened something that you've touched on already, you know, social inequality, the divide between urban cities and the countryside, the divide between those who had a watch and those who only knew of watches from films and posters and other socialist advertising that we'll get to in later chapters. Um, And the fact that these products become status symbols is really important here because it means that people who lived through this period have memories of how they acquired these three greats, what the items meant to them, and how they navigated the meanings that these items conveyed, particularly wristwatches. Uh, And you have some really fascinating stories here. You're drawing on oral interviews, literary works, but also recollections posted on blogs. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about how you found some of these recollections about, you know, memories people had about these three greats. Um, and if you could share maybe one or two of your favorites or ones that you think are particularly important or, you know, um, striking here.
1: Yeah, well, that's a really wonderful summary of all the different aspects of that um, chapter and how I try to make really the entire case for the book through that one chapter, through how people learned about. Um, these three things, wristwatches, bicycles, and sewing machines, how they began to desire them, how they went about trying to acquire them, and, of course, the state role in mediating all of this from the beginning of the, of the Mao era, the state suppressing and carefully regulating who got uh, these good things to the end of the era when production had ramped up. They needed to push people into actually wanting and acquiring those things as people began to then acquire those things and want much more things. Yeah, I, I I used every, because I did this research over 13 plus years I, and my research methods kept changing with technologies. So yeah, the biggest uh, saving grace was, to was as was with all of my projects, developing a keyword list, a list of not only in this case, you know, how to say bicycle, and sewing machine in Chinese, but also the brands associated with them. And then I found first by searching conventional databases like Song Yong Yi's famous database on the Cultural Revolution, it would take you to all sorts of places uh, in a database or in, at an archive that you never would have found in the era where you had to go through a card catalog. So I would basically tracked down everywhere I could come up with a shou biao reference to a wristwatch, uh, I would track that down. So in Song Yong Yi's database, for instance, I remember coming up with a story that I never would have found otherwise of Mao... Uh, giving his barber a wristwatch, a Shanghai wristwatch for his, a wedding present. Uh, so I did a whole bunch of that and collected lots of stories, but I had this sort of sneaking suspicion or fe- felt that in order to prove my case, I really needed to go beyond just um, state sources. I needed to get an idea of how people themselves were thinking about uh, these things, how they were learning to learning about these products, um, starting to desire them and why they were desiring them and the sort of social messages that they communicated through knowing how to ride a bike or having the latest brand of watch or um, looking for a wife who would come with the sewing machine. machine. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, one day, I don't remember the exact moment, I'm like, gee, I wonder if I just uh, put some of these terms in Baidu, um, the Chinese Google, what will come up? And lo and behold, op started coming. This was a while ago. A lot of these have now disappeared. I, I give a seminar on blogs, uh, I, I, and I've done this a couple of times now, and a three-hour seminar on blogs, and, and I not only talk about this sort of unorthodox methodology of you know sitting home in my you know pajamas, you know pumping in <laughs> uh, my, you know a long list of key uh, keyword terms into Baidu and coming up with these blog posts, but evaluating which ones you can use. Uh, it was, all these are very, very open questions. Um, I would definitely invite readers to read chapter one and then the chapter on the Mao badges, the last chapter, those chapters used a lot of blog posts and I'm sure that people could come up with a better method, more systematic methodology, uh, for using, um, blog posts. So yeah, that's how I came across blogs, favorite stories. Geez, there's so many, uh, too many to count. I think I end that chapter by talking about a guy who seems to encapsulate exactly the self-expanding and compulsory consumerism. Uh, Marx talks about self-expanding and compulsory capitalism, that it's expanding expanding on its own, that a little bit of capitalism begets more and more capitalism. Likewise, how it's compulsory to participate in this. And I kind of looked at those themes or found uh, a a story of a guy who uh, got uh, a local brand of a wristwatch and felt like a hotshot because he was the first in his work unit to have uh, a wristwatch at all. Uh, but a few years later, um, his, his colleagues had a Shanghai brand wristwatch, which was a very popular domestic, high, uh, high prestige popular domestic watch. By end of this period and beginning of the reform era after 1976, after the death of Mao, um, his colleagues have already started to shift into uh, getting Seiko's and other foreign brands, and he quickly wants to stay ahead of them. So I look at that at that sort of again, why uh, why does this person feel like he must participate? in this uh, consumerism this endless quest to get something new and better and how does that uh, contribute both to the expansion of consumerism more and more in eating more and newer stuff uh, but also the expansion of capitalism as well so i guess i would use that as an example but Yeah, I have a one small fraction, one quick note to say, um, in case they missed the footnote where I spell this out, is that Chinese blog posts come and go very quickly. Uh, And I think I only have about two instances in there that I permitted because I like the story so much where I didn't go back in time and archive it. But now I use the Wayback Machine on the Internet Archive. Uh, so that all of those uh, all of those Chinese uh, blog posts are recorded. I mean, maybe this is the most important takeaway for listeners who work on research since, say, 1949. If you encounter something on the web, especially if it's in China, you know, download it to the Internet Archive, not just to your own personal archive, because we want this stuff to be freely available, so that. People can do as I did in that seminar: go and check the stories and see how I how I'm using them to expand uh, to uh, as evidence for my interpretations.
2: Perfect. I mean, th- speaking of workarounds, I think one of my favorite moments in this chapter is when you talk about. Um the acquisition of a woman's watch, a smuggled, imported Japanese Omega woman's watch, which is given as an engagement present. Yeah. Um, and you unpack here all of the meanings that are associated with this. So it's expensive, so it's worthy of being an engagement present. It's a woman's watch, uh, which were harder to come by. Um, so through this, the husband was, the husband to be was not only demonstrating he was thoughtful and, you know, He was demonstrating that he was able to work the system. He was able to find a workaround and get his fiance a woman's watch. He was able to, you know, um, reach into, um, you know, areas with regards to smuggling and getting these sort of imported um, items. So his wife would expect then not to go without if she was to marry him. I'm um, sorry. Just on the topic well, I mean, well, of workarounds, well, I mean,
1: really, we could spend the rest of our time together talking about that example because there's so many other interesting facets mm-hmm. of that that contribute to my interpretation of the book as ho- as a whole. Where did he didn't get that at his local dime store? That was, mm-hmm. that was on a on a business trip, I believe, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. to Beijing or Shanghai. How is how are people who are going from the hinterland to the city? How is the idea that Shanghai, Beijing, Tianjin, Guangzhou, these these uh, top cities. How is their 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 status? Even as Mao is talking about turning consumer cities into producer cities, how are those cities being reinscribed as places where people want to go because mm-hmm. the, because the things on offer there are better than other places? How is that itself creating this sort of hierarchy that's fundamental to consumerism? Um, so I mean, and that guy, you know, as you may recall, had to partner up with his uh, mm-hmm. travel mm-hmm. In order to have enough money, as you said, he had to work the system to get the letter he needed to buy this. All the rigmarole that he had to go through in order to get that underscores a lot of the kind of issues That I was talking about, namely the expansion of the exactly the three major inequalities uh, between the city and the countryside, between factories and farmers. He was a manager at a factory and between mental work. He was a manager uh, Mm -hmm. and, and physical labor are all being expanded during this period. And you could write all that off as, well, that was a necessary evil, as the Soviet Union had said. But China was always, and Mao was always ambivalent about this. He kind of, he wanted, he needed, he desperately had to, was compelled to industrialize as quickly as possible. But all the while, he knew that, that this was undermining or creating these contradictions that we'll talk about in the later chapters. But yeah, we can Absol- see all of that in the grain of sand that is that that one wristwatch. And one one other note to our Friends who study this period, or who have friends in China of a certain age, I have never given this talk in a Chinese audience before, where I haven't uh, gotten additional stories. Or my students, when I've talked about this in my class, will come back the next day with stories of their parents. They all, rem- you know, they don't remember the details of certain campaigns the way that Gail Hershatter has shown, but they mm-hmm. sure as heck uh, remember um, how they acquired the, these fundamental, fundamentally important objects.
2: Mm-hmm. I think there's a moment when you're discussing this watch in particular, where it's sort of, you know, the the the, the watch was extremely expensive, and the sort of the and that you point out that, you know, how why is it that the the wife remembered the cost, and it was sort of how how could she not? How could she not remember the astronomical cost of this item? Um, you know, campaigns be what they were. What. Was going on in the world, you know. Set that aside. And
1: that was that was her response to me, right? She yes, said, yeah, "When yeah, I said, yeah. how do you, how on earth do you remember the cost?' Like everybody knows." I've subsequently asked, "What was the price of a this? What was the price of a that?" And you know, mm-hmm. the number of people, again, of a certain age who knew exactly how much they needed to save and how many ration coupons if they needed ration coupons. Uh, mm-hmm. To bot to acquire something they needed. Yeah, it really did set these sort of uh, what do we call them, goalposts. I'm thinking of an appropriate metaphor, these mm-hmm. kind of framings uh, for social life in the cities and increasingly uh, in the entire country as well.
2: Absolutely, because these are important objects. Uh, so let's follow. You'd mentioned contradictions, and this sort of, I think, takes us nicely into chapter two um, building state capitalism across 1949. And this chapter looks at how the state became more involved in the institutional arrangements of capitalism and why they decided in order to build socialism, they needed to expand industrial production instead of transforming the social relations of production. And this chapter opens with a really telling moment. So it's the spring of 1949. The People's Liberation Army is making its way into Shanghai. But instead of requisitioning private homes, the soldiers sleep in the streets they are told to preserve private possessions the private riches of the wealthy are to remain private and you point out that in this you know in this moment the takeover of shanghai introduces chinese citizens to the contradictions between socialist rhetoric and capitalist policies and this contradiction then you know characterizes the entire mao era and much of this chapter looks at how the state consistently prioritizes capital accumulation through different institutional arrangements of ownership. And this sort of reaches a peak in the three anti and five anti campaigns in 1951 and 1952. So could you talk a little bit about these campaigns in particular? Um, You know, how are capitalists (laughs) impacted by these campaigns and sort of how can we see the contradiction between rhetoric and policies at play in this, you know, sort of
0: little moment?
1: Yeah, so let me back up just a little bit to talk about how I talk about this chapter as the shift in the institutional arrangements, as you mentioned, of capitalism. A Shift in what? Toward what? Well, they clearly shift towards greater state control over capital uh, by by confiscating lots of it or confiscating it from the state, the national state, uh, as Bill Kirby has shown, that had done a lot of work of compos- uh, confiscating it um, for them, uh, but also a shift in attitude o- over consumption of, of state uh, interfering more directly in in what people are consuming and what they're wanting to consume uh, during this period. Um, I should point out also, because it's an important part of this chapter, that you know why is this? Are they just control freaks? You know, <laughs> one I suppose one argument. Oh. I uh, I just like to control every aspect of, you know, someone's lifestyle or what they're doing this. But I think it's really important always to remember what the anecdote that I wanted to start this chapter up, but couldn't figure out how to write it well enough is um, Mao's eldest son being incinerated by an American napalm bomb in uh, Korea. Um, I would have started with that because that brings home in a very visceral, direct uh, and tragic way What the leadership must have known that they have to industrialize and acquire the latest, greatest technology. In this case, atomic bombs or napalm, and uh, at least be able to shoot down American enough technology to shoot down American bombers. And that is the driving force behind them shifting along the institutional arrangements of capitalism. That is that is what's getting them to tweak how they go about industrializing as quickly as possible. Going from uh, letting the market work its magic and hoping that you know the, an A bomb is a consequence of the market working its magic, uh, or just hoping that labor goes uh, where uh, it needs it to go. Uh, so it hopes that it can't just hope that capital goes where it needs to go based on markets, um, and, and that uh, what is produced is is controlled by the state. So what we see then in this in the in the nineteen fifties is this prioritization above all of rapid industrialization. uh, And that means constantly figuring out how much control over private capital, um, over capital the state must have, um, and how much control over uh, allocation um, and also ownership and allocation, those two key institutional arrangements. So in the Sanfan Wufan, or the Three Five Antis campaign, um, the state... Um, wants to have it both ways. They want they need uh, the ca- urban capitalist class to continue running these factories. It doesn't have the personnel to do that. Uh, but it needs the resources um, of those people. Uh, so it uh, during this uh, campaign, it vilifies uh, them for their lifestyle. So it begins to crack down. It begins to create this idea that's important uh, to the Chinese Communist Party and therefore to me and how they go about convincing people what socialism is supposed to represent. As you noted at the end of your comments, the Pu Pusu or the uh Uh, work hard uh, and live frugally. Um, That is, you know, contribute more of your free labor to the state and don't ask much in return. I mean, again, that's not exactly what I would consider worker control over the fruits of their labor and its reallocation. Uh, That kind of line and the ethos behind uh, that is, as I see, the kind of um, ethos that permeates um, the Mao era during this time. So the Sanfan Wufan campaign and then this one campaign is contextualized in, in that way um, as the state's desperate need to um, acquire capital uh, quickly in order to fund uh, the ongoing uh, Korean war, as well as begin to signal that um, it, it's not a, that this initial contradiction that they introduced, namely uh, allowing capitalists to uh, keep control over their um, their factories, their capital, isn't going to continue forever.
2: Mm-hmm. I think so much of this chapter is sort of a, a gradual, gradual creep of getting even more private capital under state control. We sort of see this, it's almost like a wave, this, the way that this, the narrative of this chapter is, you sort of see the gradual, again, everything coming under greater state control, um, increasing, increasing, reaching a crescendo at this in this campaign, and then, sort of, um, the chapter ends. So it's a it's a very sort of nice, neat narrative arc in that sense.
1: Well, it's interesting that you point that out um, because, of course, critics of communism during the Cold War would say, "Aha!" But it was always part of communism uh, that you know uh, that this sort of control over all aspects of life is a defining feature of co- of communism and. I'm not really interested in what the defining features of communism are. I'm interested in the motivation for why they make these institutional adjustments. And for me, the institutional adjustments have a lot more to do with contingency, of that they're fighting a war and need to make these kind of adjustments, much like by the end of the period that I look at, as you noted in the, uh, in the afterward for the book, uh, when China begins to have, a, uh, have the problem that all industrializing countries have, happen when they, uh, have when they have too much stuff. That suddenly you have to go from uh, suppressing uh, consumption, you have to go to promoting consumption. That isn't suddenly because they've abandoned uh, communism, in, in my view. Uh, it's because they've, the, their capitalism has run into constraints. It, it's under crisis and needs to make new, uh, new um, institutional arrangements in order to facilitate its further expansion. That's quite a bit different way of looking at this period uh, than through that kind of Cold War lens that I think still remains pretty popular. Mm
2: -hmm. So sticking with, you mentioned there, you know, changing institutional frameworks. Um, Sticking with that, we move then into the middle of the book in chapters three, four, and five. And these chapters um, all look at how the CCP is expanding consumerism. So I thought we could sort of look at them together, even though each of these chapters, I'm going to probably continue saying this, but each of these chapters is really, really cool. And there's a lot going on in all of them. Um, So chapter three, Soviet influences on state consumerism, looks at how the PRC promotes all things Soviet. So not only is it promoting Soviet political ideology, which includes the Soviet tolerance for consumerism, it's also promoting Soviet styles. And here you're focusing on the popularity of Soviet clothing in particular. Um, And my favorite moment of this chapter is the example of a particularly fashionable female worker who was named in 1953 as the national model worker in the textile industry. And what sets this worker apart is the way she's dressed. So she wears a one piece style of dress made out of Soviet floral cloth. So it's a cloth with a really large floral pattern on it. And here you sort of look at how her fashion choices were both celebrated Because by wearing this clothing, you know, she's demonstrating how much she's enjoying her socialist life and how vibrant socialist life can be. And then it's questioned because it could also be and was increasingly interpreted as bourgeois behavior, especially when China breaks with the Soviet Union politically. So by the end of the 1950s, Soviet style is fading and it's no longer politically correct to wear a Soviet style floral dress. Chapter four, then, State Consumerism in Advertising, Posters, and Films, looks at how the state is trying to expand control over consumerism through advertising, uh, posters, and films. So we hear the state, we see the state here walking a very fine line. It's attempting to sort of paint material desires as bourgeois, yet still celebrating social consumption. And, you know, I said it's a very fine line. They don't always succeed in pulling this off. Uh, This chapter is really full of very, very fascinating details. So to touch on a few, you show how advertising does and does not change. So you have some great images of pre and post 1949 advertising. And you talk about how, you know, the products might remain the same, but the messaging is altered, or maybe Chairman Mao's image is brought in to try to make it seem more socialist. You also talk about posters. So you point to how the state is drawing on advertising techniques to sell an idealized uh, vision of socialism and you also look at how films are repackaged. So the CCP, as you show, had a real problem in getting people to choose Soviet and domestic films, especially over other foreign or Hong Kong films. So they turn to capitalist marketing techniques. So they give Soviet films titles to make them sound American or they advertise the film strategically. maybe they highlight the violence in the story um, even if these are you know very minor elements. In the film itself. And sort of the repackaging that we see here comes in in a real way in chapter five, state consumerism in the service sector. And this is where you look at socialist commerce, socialist department stores, and socialist window displays, all of which were a part of the, you know, apparently transformed shopping experience in post-1949 China. And here you look at how the CCP takes over retail commerce, creating by 1963 a network of nearly 20,000 retail stores with, you know, 2.4 million employees. And these stores were supposed to bring the practices of consumerism to the masses. So not just to the middle class and the elites, they're supposed to introduce new people to shopping, to browsing and to brands. And you talk here about state approved guidance for window displays, which unlike um, capitalist displays, these displays were not supposed to cheat consumers into buying products. They were supposed to promote frugal living and so all the while that this is going on the state is relying to an even greater extent on um, the extraction of people's labor so shop workers were expected to do a great deal of unpaid work while they delivered socialist commerce with their socialist smiles and while the state uh, something you would touch on here is that while the state is trying to rebrand shops they're also trying to rebrand queuing <laughs> So lining up and this seems like a really relevant example for our present moment. Uh, So Carl, could you talk through this a little bit? How were cues, you know, presented as a sign of socialist success, um, particularly during the great leap forward? How did, you know, how did lining up get rebranded and transformed?
1: Yeah, that's a, I like that example. Um, I'm just sort of in my head going through all of the stuff that you skipped to get to the sample that you got. <laughs> and all the things I was prepared and thinking about talking about, but I'll, I'll sneak some of that in anyway that I want mm-hmm. to talk about all these chapters and indeed as the book as a whole. One kind of critical reading that I got from early readers, friends uh, was that, oh, this is a kind of 30,000 foot view of what's going on in China or the economy. But they lived experience was one of which people, people, I don't know what people they're referring to, felt that they were building socialism. That was the defining uh, imaginary experience, subjectivity, whatever you want to call it. And what I've what I've tried to do here is almost in every chapter and lots of different ways say no. (laughs) There were doubts at all levels, whether it was Mao wondering about the the wisdom of following the Soviet path and that 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 wouldn't, in fact, lead to the negation of the revolution. Um, Or it was individuals like, gee, why am I in a queue? Or in that chapter, I talk about the socialist uh, smile and what uh, and Mm -hmm. the theory that um, that shopping under socialism was going to be better because you wouldn't be cheated by merchants who are going to. Or, or have to rely on your haggling skills, another uh, practice that they deemed feudal and bourgeois and tried to stamp out. Uh, some cues, likewise, were had the possibility of introducing doubts. So on the one hand, I would encourage readers to see in this book and, and, and their own research, if they're working on the Mao period, not just assume that everybody thought they were building socialism and thereby crush Uh, the the people who are oftentimes not intellectuals and popular subjects of studies, but more at the margins, who saw doubts in their everyday life. So one, I'll talk about those doubts, but two, I'd also say uh, in my response to you that none of the stuff that I'm talking about, these doubts, is going to come to a surprise to any of the bureaucrats running the country at that time. In other words, they were constantly looking for fig leaves to cover up the contradiction between what they claimed they were doing, building socialism, and what was actually going on on the ground. So queues were an example, I guess, and the, what you were requesting was an example of a fig leaf, a covering up of the contradiction. In this case, they claimed that, uh, that queues were actually a sign of the success, um, because now uh, people had much more money to spend, so they were going out to buy, it, buy things. Um, sure. I suppose. (laughs) Uh, What can I say? I'm pretty skeptical of you know of state uh, framing of just about anything, um, including this Uh, specific case of uh, how you go about explaining uh, that you have cues and at least there would be supply and you know that more people had money and therefore more people were accessing stuff. There's all different and and so uh, again for propaganda or for fig leaf to be uh, effective, it has to have some kind of merit to it. Um, and uh, undoubtedly, some of that is true, that you create a much greater distribution network. As you said, you do the work of capitalism, of creating the infrastructure of capitalism with those 20,000 stores. And you know, unsurprisingly, maybe you're going to have stores that are, aren't, don't have as much stuff in one place as they have in another place. So you're going to, that they are helping uh, create the problem. But um, I think that's a consequence of uh, more importantly, it's a consequence of their policies to suppress consumption in favor of constant uh, reinvestment um, in expanding production as absolutely quickly as possible. So it's more a consequence of that than it is um, e- either people have money that they didn't have before or, gee, that's why you need markets, because markets would have sent those signals. Those were deliberate decisions to spend more money um working towards building an atomic bomb than making sure everybody had ready access to a wristwatch, a bicycle, a sewing machine, or even grain.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned, you highlighted sort of in your answer, doubts, right? About the doubts that people are having about whether what they're experiencing, whether what is being promoted is true socialism. And that, you know, comes through in the chat in, um, Chapter three on clothing, I, I felt particularly so uh, when it's you know questioned, is promoting fashion truly socialist or how do we make the promotion of fashion truly socialist? Um, you see doubts come in in particular there. But is there anything you wanted to really highlight about that? Just because you mentioned it in your answer. Um, is there anything you wanted to highlight about that or in these chapters in particular?
1: Yeah, I, I would say one <laughs> interesting thing in that, um, geez, it must have been the third chapter on the Soviet Union. Uh, that the state is also help helping directly facilitate those doubts, and and one case that I talk about very briefly, this deserves a whole dissertation if not much more, is that um, is that polemic known as phony communism. Uh, these polemics produced between nineteen sixty three and nineteen sixty four, in which the Chinese Communist Party spells out in rich detail. What exactly has gone wrong with the Soviet case? And in that ninth polemic, it points to all the stuff that I'm pointing at as evidence um, uh, uh, that, chi- uh, that, chi- uh, that the Soviet Union was a revisionist. In other words, the, the Chinese Communist Party has given people a toolkit because they widely dist- uh, disseminate um, this, these documents, both at home and abroad, uh, given them a toolkit for saying, well, gee, I'm told we're supposed to be aiming for this. And if we end up like that, namely the Soviet Union we're revisionist or we're on our way to restoring capitalism. They can see that stuff going on all around them. Uh, They can see all that stuff going on around them so much so that this, you know, leads in the direction of the socialist education movement and eventually the the cultural revolution, a last ditch effort to try to um, bridge these contradictions. Perfect. So, so yeah, with- fashion. Yeah, fashion. I mean, just because again, once just because you put the word socialist in front of it, I mean, who gets access to the stuff that's fashionably socialist? Who gets to wear a Cadre suit? Um, you know, who can afford that kind of stuff? Or even the Bulazi, the uh, one piece dress that becomes mm-hmm. uh, popular uh, thanks to the Russian uh, Soviet need to export its surplus cotton. Uh, the state then promotes people forces in some people's uh, cases to start using this cotton and wear this dress style that when you look through the pictures of the 50s, it's very arresting where suddenly you see these big people in these very, uh, you know, loud uh, dresses and uh, shirts and men's cases. Um, you know, that's happening as a consequence of the state encouraging people uh, to buy these things. But again, who gets who gets these things and who gets them first? If the if the state is sanctioning it, who who gets one of these dresses? If, in other words, if the state has made something fashionable, who cares who makes it fashionable? It's not going to be. Uh, you know, how is it going to be distributed? I, I kind of go back to this. You know, I I'll sneak back in one line from the chapter one. Uh, China begins. Yes, China begins uh, uh, making these three things: wristwatches, bicycles, and sewing machines. But it can't give everyone one of those overnight. How does it decide how to um, spread that uh, that stuff, especially thanks to their own propaganda and the advertising posters and films. It's helping stimulate the desire for these things. It is mm-hmm. creating that inequality then. It is reproducing and expanding inequality much as we'd expect in any industrializing capitalist country.
2: Mm-hmm. And one way that uh, people find to you know grab a hold of the items that they are not, able that they had you know that they're not able to get a hold of um, is by taking them and I think this this is my way of bringing us into chapter six uh, which looks at the cultural revolution and this we see a lot of taking in this chapter this is another chapter that you know perfectly I think presents the contradiction between rhetoric and practice that you really emphasize in chapter two because here you're, you show that within the Cultural Revolution, particularly within the Destroy the Four Olds part of the campaign, there was a great deal of consumerism. So even while Red Guards were attacking capitalists, they were embracing consumerism. You know, the very activities of the, book, of the movement, to quote your book, did not build socialism but helped negate the Communist Revolution by introducing new and expanded forms of consumerism. And I mentioned, you know, taking items. My favorite part of this chapter really is how when when you look at how consumerism spread and was reproduced in house ransackings. So the Red Guards would ransack people's houses. And while there, try on problematic clothes, take a watch for themselves, learn about different watches, learn which watches were valuable, and in general, you know, become aware of brands, what, uh, you know, high standard of living looks like, learn what, you know, Items that they might not be able to get themselves actually look like. Um, and this is a really interesting chapter and a really different way of looking at the cultural revolution. Um, is there anything that you really wanted to emphasize here? Anything that you think is particularly important that the, you know, for the work that this chapter does?
1: I think you've done an excellent job in not only summarizing this chapter but also the next chapter. We think of the Chinese <laughs> Cultural Revolution as being this kind of last ditch effort uh, to try to get the revolution back on track. Um, you know, Mao has famously said that the you know that the children are causing all these problems, that they're negating the revolution, um, and that this is you know this great attempt to as the socialist education movement that leads up into this um, is trying to do. Get people to think the way they're supposed to think about the world around them. But as as you sort of described uh, with the pre- people, people participating in those house ransackings, the chaojia, another great uh, keyword term that yielded lots of great blog posts. Um, you know these kids that have grown up watching these films and you know seeing their parents strive to acquire these three great things. You know when they get the opportunity to acquire these things. Um, yeah, they're they're going to do so, whether it's temporarily just trying the stuff on, or it's stealing and confiscating them, uh, as we also see during this period. So that the, they're they're getting the kind of exposure to what the insides of these houses actually look like, what a, what a bourgeois life looks looks like. Uh, Denise Ho has shown a little bit of this in uh, in the exhibitions as well, um, in the uh, Cultural Revolution era exhibitions, where what they're trying to do is teach people: here's what a here's what an evil landlord looks like. He's got all these, you know, silk stockings (laughs) and three watches and all of this other kind of stuff and nice clothing and so on. But yeah, people aren't getting the intended message all the time. They're looking at that and saying, not saying, Oh, how terrible that person and exploitative that person is. Well, they may be saying that, but they may also be saying, I want, I want to be some of that too. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I see a, a lot, a lot of that, um, Going on in that period, I think as we kind of inch towards the kind of conclusion of this period, it also I guess when I was researching, remember I said that I did the last that second book as China goes, so goes the world by kind of going backwards in time, and it all it always pr- troubled me the idea that there was this sort of overnight transition from a socialist China to a capitalist China, from a consumer oriented China to a you know, at a Spartan uh, or whatever we imagine the Mao era to be like. So I guess I, I don't. I don't want to say I found what I was looking for, but I do want to say that I, I didn't expect that they somehow magically transformed from one subjectivity to another overnight. And so I, you know, my hunch was, my suspicion was that there was at least some of this. Uh, going on, that again, that what you'd find in any industrializing uh, country, much as Marx predicted, were these inequalities, and that you know that we should be expecting to find those, not expecting to find socialist egalitarianism. Um, maybe you know, sure, certainly there was uh, plenty of that, and certainly some people would have experienced the era and have nostalgia for the era for exactly that reason. But yeah, what I try to show in those two chapters is that they're simultaneously negating, undoing, doing the exact opposite of what they claim they're doing.
2: Absolutely. And I think, you know, talking about doing the exact opposite, I think that's what is so, I I love chapter seven. I think that's what's so cool about it. This is the chapter where you look at the Mao badge um, phenomenon as a consumer fad Um, and, you know, talk about people doing the opposite of what you want. You talk about, you know, the badges, um, they're little, you know, they can be little, but they started off as little, easy to exchange, you know, worn to communicate ideas and social standing. They start off being created by the party and then people start to make their own, which leads to badge inflation. So you have an ever expanding range of badge styles and sizes and quality. Um, You know, people travel to go and get the badges to exchange the badges, they become commodities in and of, in and of themselves. People trade things for them, um, and you know the fad that you describe here is so intimately familiar, right? This is this sort of uh, this is a very common phenomenon. You know, regardless of whether we're talking about tradable cards or tradable stuffed animals, I'm dating myself very specifically here, um, but you know, this is very, very, very familiar phenomenon that you're describing. Um, and I'm actually curious about how you came to decide to write a chapter entirely on badges. Um, and I was actually wondering if you could say just a little bit about some of the badges that I believe you have, because I understand Mm. from the acknowledgments that you have a couple yourself.
1: Um, yeah, great summary. And, um, yeah, I really wish I had, uh, you to proofread or write the blurb for the book or something like that, because you do such a great job uh, job doing this. And it's not easy. Again, I've written three books, so I've talked with lots of people over the years and yeah, it's really remarkable how much you capture. Uh, and then you lead me to a very specific question and I want to go back and answer one of the other things you mentioned. Um, so yeah, why did I think to write a chapter on badges? Um, well, first I'd just back up a little bit to talk about how I was mm-hmm. thinking about the material in the first place and how I kind of led to the conclusion that I was leading. I talk about this in a brief way in the introduction, so I hope people pick up on it, uh, that at first this was an accumulation of inconsistencies or contradictions. It's like, well, gee, this seems to be having the opposite effect. Well, gee, this seems to be having the opposite effect. And the, the way that I put this in the introduction is how many exceptions before something's not exceptional. How many exceptions before it's actually a part of the system you're creating? And what is exceptional is the rhetoric produced by the Chinese Communist Party to explain away what is actually an entirely predictable outcome of any industrial, any industrializing country, especially one that has to industrialize at all costs overnight. So I, I decided to write on the Mao butt ba- badge phenomenon because that seemed like the most, and the Cultural Revolution itself seemed like the best evidence against what I was talking about. Um, So I, I, in fact, at one point when the writing process, I wanted to make this chapter one. In other words, I I couldn't figure out how to write it this way without having to repeat many times the whole political, you know, economic, so on history of China. Uh, But originally I wanted to foreground it and say, like, if you don't agree with me here, you might not agree with me in the following (laughs) chapters or something like that. Um, So, yeah, I, I... I think I went about, first of all, I had a a, in all the memoirs that I read, like many of us read, and one of them I specifically um, cite, um, uh, one of these memoirs uh, from a Red Guard um, uh, that I read. I think it was the first book I read in China in college or something. I remember how they were using badges in this very practical way. I think in that case was using it so that you could get on like the last train out of Guangzhou, mm-hmm. as people will recall, during this early period of the of the Cultural Revolution decade, um, first months, uh, they were given free transit. But that didn't mean you got a seat, let alone on the train, if they were overwhelmed with students. So I remember kind of flagging that in my head as a kind of contradiction or an inconsistency, like, hold on a minute. Why are they? It seems like they're using this in lieu of money. They can't bribe their way on, but they can give uh, air quotes there. They can give. Um, somebody, I say in air quotes because they're really you know they're not giving it to them. they're bribing them mm-hmm. to get on this train. So I flagged that you know and and I think o- over the years of reading these memoirs, I've always paid attention to those different examples of how people seem to be using badges uh, for something else. Um, so I think I was always with, with as with many of these chapters they they emerge very much organically, which is why you know the, the theoretical aspect of the book great um, I hope people, seriously contemplate it and think about how that theory works with their material. But I'm, you know, especially proud of the kind of bottom up organic way that I went around about accumulating every and any story that I would have about stuff. And then that stuff began to narrow down to, you know, the three uh, big items, uh, major items that people wanted. Great, great things. I think I ended up translating as three great things uh, mm-hmm. And Mao badges were just one more of these other items where you could find a tremendous number of on the ground stories of people's experience, desiring them, acquiring them, and then using them to communicate uh, their identity. Those are those three you know, features of consumerism, the mass production, the ideas that become associated with those things that are mass produced, and the how unequal hierarchical identities are communicated through these things. So it seemed like. I would be kind of turning the Cultural Revolution interpretations on its head by saying rather than this kind of glorious last ditch effort to save something admirable, the values of socialism, um, of, uh, of equality, um, of, uh, of, of worker control, turning it on its head and seeing how it actually exacerbated the exact inequalities that the Cultural Revolution was trying to make one last ditch effort. Uh, to control and i also state, as as you did that it also uh, uh, um it also led to the undermining of even state capitalism itself so the state control over the economy was undermined once they unleashed this fad because Uh, People started, were highly incentivized to participate and to do so by setting up these underground or do-it-yourself factories and operations. So they were stealing resources from the state sector, or in some cases, according to one Chinese historian from Graves, Metal from graves, gold from the teeth of dead people, in order to make um, make these uh, badges. So they were negating their own, you know, the own idea of the economy they wanted to create. A state dominated form of capitalism was being negated by this fad, which then, you know, culminates with them pushing very quickly away in the second half of the Cultural Revolution decade. The economy in the second half looks quite different than the economy in the first half, as it becomes increasingly uh, decentralized.
2: I think one of my favorite parts of this chapter in particular, you know, speaking of, you know, the ways that this the badges and the the exchanging of badges and the creation of badges is sort of negating the entire, you know, revolution itself is sort of you have this very telling moment where a red guard shows Mao her badge collection and he's horrified and he asks her to get rid of it. And she says, no, no, I'm not going to get rid of it. I worked really hard for these badges Uh, Which I think is one of my favorite moments of sort of, you know, the something that has come up before, you know, the concern that the state has, the doubts that the state has about what is going on and whether this is, you know, going in the direction that they want. Um, But with that, is there anything else you wanted to mention about, you know, sort of the negation of the revolution that comes through in these badges in particular?
1: Well, really, um, you can go program by program, initiative by initiative and see how they backfire or negate or do the opposite of what they're intended to do. So a pretty good um, famous program for this year is the Da Chuan and the great exchange program, um, or as I call it, the great badge exchange program. Uh, where these um, students are encouraged uh, to go spread word of the revolution um, across the country. So 12 million teenagers and sometimes their teachers are allowed to travel around the country uh, for free on public transport um, and exchange revolutionary experiences with one another. I'm sure some of that happens. And and again, on these blog posts records, you can see kind of what happens when they get to Shanghai maybe early on they'll first go to one of the leading universities there and read the dots about the big character posters to see how the political winds are changing but shortly thereafter they'll go see the famous tourist sites and you know go shopping um, then on their way out they'll you know try they'll exchange badges with one another so you know I don't want to say this didn't give them a different sense of China and maybe give them a different sense certainly the people who tried to rewalk the uh the Long March would have had some kind of experience of the suffering that the Chinese Communist Party went through. But, you know, it was simultaneously doing this other thing as well. And I don't think that we should only talk about the one without talking about the other, especially if we want to integrate the mysterious middle into the entire history of the 20th century.
2: Absolutely. And, you, you know, as you just said, you know, it may have been doing all of the things that the party wanted it to, but people were also getting souvenirs, <laughs> 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 you know, while they were, uh, at, you know, opening their minds. Um, and I'm, as you point out, with you read, I guess if you read the blogs, you see which people remembered, um, and they probably possibly remembered the badge exchange a little bit more, or that left a little bit more of an impression than you know the opening up of their minds. Um, and you just ended there, though, was talking about you know viewing the period as a whole. And dealing with the mysterious middle, and I think this very neatly takes us to the afterword. and this part of the book really hammers home the core of your argument. Um, you know that the self expanding and compulsory consumerism shaping the Mao era is one negating not capitalism but rather the goals of the communist revolution that despite the promises to build socialism, the CCP continued to build capitalism, exacerbating social inequalities and you make a point here that the example of China should really be used to render the history of capitalism and consumerism truly global. And I know that these are, you know, the big themes of the book and these are, you know, big arguments and themes of the book and we touched on these a little at the beginning of our conversation and I think throughout, but to sort of round this off, I wonder if you could build on this a little in particular. What would it mean to think of the Mao era as part of an integrated world history in this way, both for world history and the history of the Mao era itself?
1: I think the simplest and clearest way to put it is none of this stuff going on in China was happening on a separate planet. Uh, It was happening in direct response to what the already industrialized capitalist countries were doing both to each other and doing to China. So China was being compelled along, along this sort of road um, and this sort of road to accumulating capital and accumulating capital in the form of things, and especially things called technology, um, with the atomic bomb being the kind of marquee thing they needed to acquire. Um, so that means uh, that a couple of different things, first of all, because they're a late comer, as Gershon Kron called countries like this, um, they're going to their form of capitalism is going to look quite different. In all latecomer examples, you see a massive involvement of the state. And not just, again, letting the market work its magic and hoping one day an atomic bomb is the product of that market working its magic, but they have to have that and they have to accumulate capital and they have to accumulate technology and build build as quickly as, as possible. So starting from that from that starting point, we have. To, I, I think we should see everything that's going on in China is interconnected with global capitalism. So to be sure, there are all sorts of parts of what we see in China during this period, right down to the present, and indeed in the United States, where I'm sitting now, in which, gee, that doesn't look like it's what I would call capitalism. Most prominent or perhaps best studied example of this is care work. All of that care work, all of the social reproduction, namely the creation of workers to create capital, happens outside of capital. Uh, So capitalism always requires cheap, or free inputs from somewhere else. Uh, In this case, the work oftentimes of women uh, creating people to create capital. We could also point to the environment. Uh, Capital needs, uh, capitalism needs, you know, environmental uh, externalities, quote unquote, as they're called by economists in in order to function. Likewise, capitalism needs uh, space, as David Harvey uh, would would talk about this. so capitalism needs these places that are are underdeveloped or are developing in a certain way for it to serve the metropole. In this case, um, countries like the United States. So uh, I, there uh, there are going to be people who read this who focus on one or another part of the elephant, <laughs> uh, rural China or something, and say, "Gee, this looks much more like feudalism uh, here." Or, "Gee, there aren't very many commodities here. People would have no idea what the San Gen were." And I would say that the bigger picture in which that's operating—the reason why those people are being in the countryside are being uh, squeezed to the point of starvation and tens of millions of deaths—is that they need to be that their uh, that their surplus needs to be uh, taken uh, by the state in order to accelerate the state-led uh, capitalism. So I guess the story going both outward from China but down into places that don't look much like capitalism, is to say that my version of capitalism, a global version of capitalism, will always and necessarily include uh, parts of the world uh, and parts of a country that look nothing like uh, capitalism, that as one or as, as some scholars have called it, the sort of primitive or original accumulation, the original capital acquired isn't a one-off experience like enclosure movement in the UK. But, in things that that I've mentioned, like care work or the environment or spatial um, development, is is ongoing
2: perfect. And I think what you've just said there really, you know goes back to something that you began with in the beginning, which is a healthy skepticism about you know the terms that are used and the terms that a state chooses to use for itself. Um, I think it's just a a, a perfect way of ending. Um, I think this, you know, this conversation about your book, I think that that sort of, to my mind, at least sort of ties um, a really neat bow in it. So thank you for that. Um, and so now that we've come to the end of your book, um, and the end of our conversation, what, you know, now that you're finished with this three part series of books on um, consumerism in China, what are you working on next? What is inspiring you now?
1: Well, I have, uh, first of all, before I forget, thank you so much for a wonderful interview. Like I said, uh, it's just amazing how well you summarize different parts of this. I, I, I need a transcript for this. I'm going to put it up on my website so that people that want the Cliff Notes version of the book can just read your your opening comments for the different questions. Um, so yeah, what I'm working on next, I have a kind of professional answer, then I have a more honest answer. The professional answer is something to do with the 80s. On my website, you can download an article that I wrote about the uh, early 1980s, s, uh, in collecting stories about Goethe who, that is private businesses, I noticed that there uh, that oftentimes when a family was diversifying its own portfolio, they would send a, 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 a female member of their next generation off to set up the business because that female member, in uh, setting up a Goethe who, would take herself out of the line for getting a state job, so they would uh spread their risk out by keeping their son in line for a state job if they had more than one child and tossing their uh, daughter in- into uh, into experiencing um, b- uh, building a own business from the ground up. So I'm interested in all aspects and I'm just collecting massive numbers of stories about uh, Goethe Hu. And so I'm thinking about looking at um, how this first wave in the shift towards private control uh, over capital, the shift in these institutional arrangements away from state capitalism towards uh, much greater private control over capitalism that we saw in the 1980s occurred. But the kind of more honest answer is, you know, i, I judging from how long these books take me and how much of my, you know, <laughs> sanity they take. Um, I, I want to think long and hard and not just do what's in front of me. So I'm, you know, accumulating. Um, materials for a project on the 1980s in and go who and a given talk and published that article that I mentioned. Uh, but I'm also simultaneously just kind of reading different kinds of stuff, uh, very uh, uh, different kinds of stuff. Uh, to see what might be a swan song or a, you know possibly a last project. If this is if I only have one more book in my uh, uh, in me, then I, I want it to be something that I feel equally excited about. What excited me most about this project was I felt that it was very much a contemporary project as well. Uh, how you go about defining what went on in the Mao era says quite a bit about your contemporary. Uh, politics as well. And I found it really satisfying to be engaged um, uh, with the project on these different kind of both the kind of personal and professional level. And I think I want to find something that similarly resonates with more than just like something that's executable based on the blog posts or whatever other resources I can lay my hands on.
2: That sounds like a very, that sounds like a very sort of I can imagine that approach being very worthwhile and very uh, satisfying in the, you know, accumulation and then deciding what to do. So I'm very much looking forward to see what, to seeing what happens with all of the sources and the materials that you're accumulating right now. But the the example that you mentioned, the sort of workaround for getting the daughter out of, you know, being in line for a state job, that sounds like a fascinating workaround. Um, you know, speaking of those in and of itself. So I've looking forward to seeing what happens with that part of the possible story, or maybe that's the whole story um, as well. So with that, I wish you the very best of luck with that. Thank you so much again for you, you know you. writing this book and for taking the time to talk to me about it.
1: Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it.